This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we're speaking with Jude David. He's out of uh, Louisiana. He's a senior broker with Raincatcher. Raincatcher is a national M&A brokerage firm based in Denver, although Jude is in their Lafayette, Louisiana office. As a Louisiana native turned corporate attorney and investment banker, Jude is a passionate devotee professionally to corporate development through organic growth, business consulting, strategic planning, merger and acquisition negotiation, acquisition integration, and other partnership or venture structures. Although Raincatcher is designed to operate in a team environment, Jude's primary role is negotiating deals to closing in the back half of the transaction. Jude, welcome to the show. Bob, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. You know, for a guy from Lafayette, I don't detect a great deal of accent. What the heck happened? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, you know. I fish down on the bayou, and so I, I get plenty of accent around me. But uh, somehow, I guess with uh, being a, a person with too many degrees, I ended up going to too much school and lost my accent. Yeah, you know, it, it'll happen. I grew up in the deep south myself, and you know, 40 years in Colorado will kind of take and uh, get rid of that as well. Well, with that being said, um, Bring us up to speed. How did you get to where you are now as far as your background and, and your journey? Sure. Yeah, I was born and raised in South Louisiana in a town called Lafayette. It's about 120,000 people, so big for Louisiana, but small by big city standards. Uh, and you know, we are a good Catholic community. I learned to love God and family first and always work hard, but uh, live to work or work to live and not live to work, I should say. So uh, you know, that's, that's good community values that we have. Uh, and I find you know, that some of the most successful people in life are some of the hardest workers I know, uh, but they always find ways to put family first, uh, be really good um, you know, role models to their kids. And that allows them to have the energy and the drive to be really good at what they do. So I've always tried to emulate that. Um, I'm, I practiced merger and acquisition law uh, for a long time after graduating from MBA school and law school. Uh, and I was very fortunate. I got in with some great people uh, and had tremendous success. Um, you know, right people, right place, right time. And a whole lot of hard work really added up to a ton of success very early along in my career. And I was put in a position where uh, I really had to swim or else I was going to sink. Uh, you got thrown in the deep end really early. Uh, and there's nothing like experience when it comes to mergers and acquisitions. Um, I've been very fortunate to have, you know, clients with tremendous character and talent uh, to help form me along the way as well. Uh, they probably put way too much confidence in me early along, and it allowed me to succeed. Um, and, you know, by happenstance over the years, you know, some representation, I've represented tremendously successful companies and business owners and celebrities. Um, you know, over my time of being a lawyer, my firm represented uh, Nick Saban. Um, I wasn't his primary point of contact. I'm a, I'm a diehard LSU fan and, you know, <laughs> he left my Tigers in a lurch. So, uh, you know, my, my, uh, my colleague Hank uh, handled all of his stuff. Uh, and I don't think you wanted me too close to that situation. Uh, but, you know, other, other ones, I've represented uh, Jack Nicklaus uh, and his family and, um, and some other sports celebrities as well. Uh, I represented J. Howard Marshall's family estate. Uh, he was a billionaire oil tycoon. 
you may remember, married Anna Nicole Smith. His family owned 20% of Coke Industries, one of the wealthiest families in the world. Just by happenstance, a lot of these things came to me, and I got tremendous experience early along. Um, even more than that, I got to represent private equity groups, politicians, large companies, big-time developers, and uh, you know, having all of that exposure really allowed me to have some success. Uh, but my favorite has always been representing you know, humble small business owners who are trying to grow their companies in the right way. They put the confidence in the people around them and you know, anything else is just gravy on top of that. So that's always been my favorite. But how did I get here? Uh, in 2016, uh, I got in a car accident, uh, got a neck and arm injury that left me feeling like I wasn't able to do desk work uh, day after day like I did before. Uh, and whenever you practice corporate law, it means on a very slow day, I might sit at my desk eight hours. Uh, but on the busy days, it's a lot more than that. And so over the years, I'd had several private equity groups and independent companies ask me to leave practicing law to go work with them. I'd never really given any credence to that because I didn't have any reason to. Uh, but you know, after I had my injury and a surgery trying to repair it, uh, I decided that I probably need to make needed to make a switch and uh, started putting some feelers out. And that's where, you know, for you that, you know, I, I was thinking first from the pictures you showed me before the show. So you've been doing fishing therapy. I can tell. <laughs> well, you know, I don't really fish much myself anymore. Uh, I like to take my kids fishing. Uh, uh, yeah. That's, that's a tremendous catch. source of joy. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Best days on the, with the kids on the water for sure. So with that, and so you were looking around, how did you and Raincatcher run across each other? Well, I was very fortunate that Marla and Jason found me. Uh, like I mentioned, I'd, I'd put out some feelers, mostly on LinkedIn. Um, I considered a few private equity group positions, but most of those would have required a move. We don't have much in the way of private equity in South Louisiana. Um, yeah, the closest would be Baton Rouge, and I had an offer there, uh, as well as New Orleans. But we love Lafayette, and we want to stay here. Uh, I contemplated starting my own private equity group or even a brokerage, uh, which is probably what I would have done if I hadn't connected with Marla and Jason. But fortunately, they saw what I was looking for, and they reached out to me. And uh, you know, it was just a tremendous happenstance for me that I got to come and, and be a part of their team. Um, I loved whenever I talked to them at first that, um, Raincatcher almost seemed like a startup at that point. Uh, and, and I don't mean that it was brand new. It's just, uh, it had a different vision before, uh, it was a boutique business brokerage, uh, and Marla purchased it. Marla's our CEO. Uh, Marla purchased the company from the founder, uh, not long before I came on board and, she had a different vision. Uh, she brought Jason on as well as an owner uh, and the two of them together wanted a much larger scale national business brokerage, much less of a boutique than it had been. Uh, and they also saw the vision for adding a mid market uh, side as well uh, to get into a little bit bigger deals. Uh, one of the things I didn't like is that small business brokerage you know, has a very well earned reputation. That's worse than used car salesmen. And <laughs> Yeah, that, that's coming from a lawyer. So I, mean, I, was, I was concerned about leaving the practice of law because my reputation would get worse. 
<laughs> and, uh, and Marla and Jason had a tremendous vision for how to do it better. They saw that you know investment bankers and mid-market advisors have really good practices and procedures in place for how to treat clients well and and how to have um, a very successful business that that is aimed at uh, closing companies with the right buyers at the right price. And they wanted to bring those same processes and procedures into small business brokerage. And so, given all of my experience with investment bankers and in that. M&A advisory space, it seemed like a great fit that I could come in and both help implement those procedures and also build out the M&A division uh, for Raincatcher. Um, another thing I really loved, Marla and Jason uh, really wanted to do this right. They wanted to make sure that they took about six months off from even bringing in new leads for sales uh, so they could build out those processes and procedures uh, and really you know, have have something built so that as soon as it caught fire and we build out the team, uh, then we can scale it and grow it into a, a really large scale national broker. For me, it allows me to use my entrepreneurial mind to grow a subset of the business in the merger and acquisition advisory space uh, while having a perfect team to support, uh, support me from the business brokerage side and also, um, you know, in this space as well. Perfect marriage for us gives me everything that I need and all the support that I need. And hopefully I'm a good fit for them as well. You know, the, the thing that, that struck me, I, I've had coffee with Marla a couple of times and her focus on, on the business owner and making sure the business owner gets taken care of properly, you know, and, and you, that's been a repetitive uh, refrain every time I talk to her and the same thing with Jason. So, you know, I, I think about that as a core culture um, that you guys bring to the table. You know, as as you look across, you know, your previous experience and, and exposure to to all of these other um, uh, entities and individuals and, you know, athletes and so on, what, you know, you always look at, it's not the age, it's the mileage. You know, and it sounds like you got a lot of mileage early on. What do you think your key takeaways or benefits to Raincatcher are of all the mileage that you, you had before? Uh, gosh, that's a great question. Uh, and I agree completely. There's nothing like experience in this game. If, if you've seen a lot of deals and you've seen all the games that people play and the gimmicks and, and everything else, uh, it, it just gives you a lot of experience to draw on. Um, I, I don't think there's any new situations <laughs> that will ever arise in your career in, in merger and acquisition work. Uh, it's only recycled situations that have happened before, either to you or to somebody else. Mm -hmm. uh, and so being able to draw on a lot of that experience, I think helps. Uh, a lot of the guys on the team will come and, and talk to me about what do you think about this situation or that one. Um, and instead of just having to wing it, a lot of times I can tell an anecdote. Uh, and then, you know, they can promptly start, start snoring and, <laughs> and <you> know, <laughs> they realize that, you know, their eyes are glazing over because I'm, I'm telling another war story. Uh, but those war stories do have a lot of impacts. Uh, whenever you can draw on them, it helps to uh, be able to paint a picture. of. Well, you know, I, I think about as a business owner, you know, it's, you know, I've got this offer and, you know, there's one or, or offers. One is more cash, one's an earnout, you know, and there's this discussion going back and forth. And for you, having seen 
more than one of both of those. You can talk to them at length. Here's the pros and cons of either approach I'm thinking. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, earnouts are second nature for me. I've done so many of them over the years. And every type of deal structure fits a particular need. I never think that we should allow buyers to dictate what the deal terms are going to be. And I think a lot of brokers do it that way. Buyers will come to them with a listing uh, that they saw and uh, they'll dictate what they think ought to be a reasonable deal. Uh, and really what I've found as long as I've been doing this is that the seller's broker really is in the position of dictating to the buyer what the deal terms ought to be. And I never saw that aspect of the deal before I started this. But if uh, we can't find a deal structure that makes sense because the price is off, earn out or equity can be a great discussion to have. But there's other reasons as well that you might uh, look at the, the various deal structures. Um, you know, for instance, um, if somebody is really excited about the buyer and they think that there's a lot of opportunity for a second exit, that's when I really want to make sure that my client is going to stay on with the business and is going to have equity rolling forward in the company. Uh, if I can't tell you, I can't emphasize enough how many times I've seen this, that, um, a buyer will come along and just talk constantly about how the seller's an idiot. You know, this, this seller who built a business and, uh, you know, it's an exciting business. The buyer now wants to buy, but of course the, the seller's an idiot because they've been doing, you know, eight or 10 things the wrong way for however many years. And the buyer's the first one to tell you how they're going to change everything. And it's actually going to be a really good situation after closing. And, you know, like you'd expect, the seller doesn't like that. <laughs> they, Oddly enough. They, yeah. they hear from a buyer that, that, you know, you're kind of an idiot and you've been doing things the wrong way. And, and the seller's just sitting back going, gosh, I mean, this guy's going to figure out how hard it is as soon as he closes the transaction. And, uh, you know, I, I can help a seller in that circumstance to either find a new buyer or to figure out a deal structure that makes sense so that, you know, regardless of whether this guy's a jerk, you can get the deal closed and then not have to deal with them anymore. And so, in that type of situation, I'm going to try to make sure that the seller and the buyer have as little contact as possible after closing it. There's an all cash deal. And, uh, you know, knowing how the deal structures work and being able to, to bend the deal to those dynamics really has helped us have some success. But you had the benefit of seeing deals that didn't work, I would imagine. I did. Um, although I got to tell you, over the years, um, you know, I've, I've done hundreds of these deals and uh, I've got to say that the ones that didn't work, I can count on one hand. Mm -hmm. uh, the ones that did work and it turns out the buyer was unsat or the, uh, rather the seller was unsatisfied after closing. It's really small. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned value builder. We do work with value builder and they've said that, um, 75% of sellers tend to be unsatisfied after closing uh, with the deal that they did. And that just hasn't been my experience at all over the years. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's funny. I've heard that statistic as well. And so, you know, as you think about, you know, that, that dissatisfaction number, you know, and, and I wonder in your process, what do you think the key ingredient or ingredients are that when you get the right buyer for the seller, that that doesn't occur as frequently 
for your clients? Why do you think that is? Well, like I mentioned, structuring the deal to fit the relationship of the buyer and seller is probably the most important item. Um, you know, making sure that that the seller is set up for success. Uh, but we have a lot of tools at Raincatcher that we use uh, to make sure that, that there's not dissatisfaction after a deal closes. Um, you know, one of those is going to be uh, making sure that we have the right financial advisor to help um, you know, build out a vision for post-closing. What are you going to do with the money? What are you going to do with your time? Uh, both of those are very valuable, and a lot of people don't know the answer to that question. Uh, but a big part of it as well is making sure that they're ready to sell before they go to market, uh, so that they're not trying to force a sale, uh, and also making sure that they're just comfortable with what their life is going to be like uh, after they get to a closing, not being an, a business owner anymore, not being the person that gets reported to at the company. Um, and for some people, that's okay. For some people, it's not. Um, and that, that's not to say if it's not okay, uh, you, you can still sell your company, um, but you might do it more like a partnership. Bring on a 60% owner and grow the thing together. It, it helps you take some chips off the table. It helps you, uh, you know, up your chances for growth, put a little uh, liquidity into the company uh, to help you grow the company. But also it allows you to, to slow down a little bit in life and, and see what the next stage brings. Uh, you know, so I, I think... I think about the things that you were just talking about. Sorry for interrupting. And, and, you know, and I think about that business owner that's, you know, has the pride of ownership. He's built the company. He says, you know, I've done this all by myself. You know, I'm going to sell this business. I don't need, you know, a brokerage firm or an advisor to come help me, you know, structure the business for a sale. And then it said, oh, by the way, you know, there's those fees that those guys charge. You know, what are your thoughts around, the business owner that's trying to do it themselves and you know, that may be the only time they've ever sold a business in their life. I mean, I, I just can't even begin to tell you how wrong that is, <laughs> you know, uh, and it's, it's a misconception that we see all the time. Uh, you know, people feel that they're bringing in a broker to help them find a few leads so that, those buyer leads will ultimately be somebody that they sell the company to no trouble at all. They find these buyer leads, the company sells, you know, a month or two months later. And that's something that we have to tell every client whenever they come in the door or a potential client. Um, you know, it's a very long process. It's a very intense process. If you're two or three years in advance of closing, you have a lot of runway to start exit planning now start getting your company in shape to sell and that way it can hopefully speed up the process whenever you get there. Most people don't have that time. They've, they've decided to hire a broker at the very last second. Um, and that's only after trying to do it themselves and figuring out that this is something way too complex for me to do on my own. Um, and they only really begin to realize their broker's value once they get towards the very end of this process and start realizing how complex it is. Uh, because it's so much more than just you know, finding a few buyer leads and then connecting and finding a right personality fit. Uh, the things that you don't know in this game are what's going to kill you. And um, I've seen, uh, from my lawyer days, I've seen clients all the time who come to me with a signed letter of intent in hand, 
you know, they found a buyer on their own. They got completely taken advantage of and a signed letter of intent is in hand. And you run into the risk of how do we undo this stuff without killing the relationship? You know, do we start over completely or do we, you know, instead try to renegotiate with this buyer and lose a little integrity in the process? Uh, because we already have something in hand. I know it's not a binding agreement to purchase, but um, but you've already come to an agreement on what the, the key deal terms would be. Uh, so what you don't know is what kills you in the process. Um, but then they try to hire a broker and, you know, it's, <laughs> I've had clients tell me that before, that it's really hard to hire a broker. There's no definitive source out there that I can go to you know, I can't get on Yelp and figure out who's the best <laughs> business broker. <laughs> it's yeah, not like you, you're trying to pick a restaurant for dinner. You're, you're trying to find something where there's very little information out there. And, we, you know, you know I think about your experience and Marlo's experience. I mean, you guys have hundreds of businesses behind you. I mean, through, through you know, and, and I think about the, the analogy for surgery. You know, you go, I've got a brain tumor. And you go, well, this is, let's go to this guy over here. He's done it twice. Or let's go to this other guy that's done it, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times. And I find that curious that people don't necessarily look at their business the same way. Exactly. I, I think it's a great analogy for business brokerage. I think it's an even, even greater analogy for your merger and acquisition lawyer. Uh, and I actually use that one a lot, that if somebody – has a long-standing relationship with their corporate counsel uh, over time, and you know that person has helped them with uh, licensing in various states. They've helped them with lawsuits and defending frivolous matters and leases and whatever came up over the years. That was the lawyer they went to. They develop a great relationship, and it's a lot like their general practitioner doctor that they go to once a year for a physical. They feel very comfortable with that person. But you better believe if you need life-saving brain surgery or open-heart surgery, you're going to go find a specialist surgeon who does it every single day. And what's amazing is with their lawyers, whenever they need a highly sophisticated merger and acquisition lawyer to navigate a very complex process that isn't going to have one or two contracts, it's going to have you know, maybe one or 200 contracts that need to be negotiated. And it's not going to have three or four items of diligence. It's going to have thousands of items of diligence. And they need somebody who's navigated this system every single day of their working careers, but instead they fall back to that same general practitioner they've always been going to. And like, like you'd expect, a lot of small uh, corporate lawyers very frequently will say, you know, I've done contracts before. Yes, I can help you with that. Uh, and, and again, it's what they don't know that really kills them. Uh, and, and I can't tell you how many times that we've gotten two or three months into the process before the, the corporate counsel will say, okay, I cry uncle. I, I don't know how to do this. I don't know what I'm doing. I need help. And it's a lot harder at that point in the process to redo it. Well, you know, I, I think about the cost of doing it beforehand or the cost of legal fees post-close. It's a whole lot more valuable to do it before. Oh, you're right about that. And, um, and, you know, even the cost of doing it the right way, people don't realize that even though your merger and acquisition lawyer might have a higher dollar amount per hour that they charge, if they take a third of the hours to do a transaction and you also up the percentage chance that they'll get the transaction completed, 
uh, you're saving quite a bit of money <laughs> in terms of, of what you're going to end up paying the lawyer, even on the front end. Uh, not to mention all the back end benefit that you're talking about, but it's actually significantly cheaper on the front end. You know, I, I, it's it's interesting. You know, I in in some of the other stuff that I've worked with, there's a broad commentary that the business owners don't know what they don't know. Do you think I, that's I couldn't a valid? Agree with that more, I absolutely couldn't agree with that more. You know, I, from your perspective, when you go, what are the chief things that you think that the you know, the, the smaller business owners that you've run across, is there a common theme on the things that they just plainly don't know? Sure. Uh, very frequently, they don't have a clue about what their company's worth. Um, they'll, they'll come to us needing a valuation. And if you ask them what they think the company's worth, they, they don't even know where to begin. They've heard stories about companies in their industry selling, and it might be a company 10 times their size, but but they'll say, well, that company sold for $20 million. And so hopefully something around that size. Uh, and you start saying, yeah, but you know, they're, they're a company doing $100 million a year in revenue. You're a company doing 500000 a year in revenue. Uh, it's probably not quite the same. And so it's, it's a little bit of a disconnect even to, to know what you might get whenever you go to market. But the idea of what it's going to take to sell their company, the typical impression is, uh, you know, this is going to be a process of a month or two. Like uh, selling a house. It's like selling a house. We're going to go find a buyer. We're going to hire a, a title attorney to essentially sign the papers that say we're transferring the title over, and that's going to be it. And so it's it's a very, very intense process. It's going to take a very long time. Um, and most people, um, because it's so... Uh, simplistic in their mind versus as complex as it as it actually is in the real world uh, are going to try to shop that kind of service the way they do with anything else. They're going to try to find the cheapest price they can get, try to find uh, as much as they can do on their own without relying on trusted advisors. And so we're working against uh, a lot of that internal notion uh, that that the owners have. You know, what what made them so successful as a business owner is being able to figure things out as they go and being able to figure out what works best for their business. And what we have to convince people to do is seed control. Uh, you know, Take a step back and realize that this is an area where you actually need a trusted advisor. This is not you know, trying to cure the sniffles. This is trying to do complex brain surgery. And you know, well, we you know, can't... I, I think about that you know, as an analogy, right? And what, you're, what you're looking for is the best of the best, is really what you're after. You know, even in surgery, you know, you've got the, the surgeon that's doing the procedure. You've got the anesthesiologist. You know, you've got a bunch of other professionals, the radiologists, everybody that's involved. And you, you, when you're trying to build your team, you want to have the absolute best talent in each position. It's like, you know, like having your football team and everybody has the same skill set. That's not going to happen. And, and you're right. It. It's, it's really interesting that you used uh, the analogy of selling a house because a lot of people do think of it that way. And you know, there, are, there are bad brokers in all kinds of different fields, but I think most people have seen that there are good, good and bad brokers when you try to sell a house. Uh, you know, I've, I've certainly seen it through my real estate work. And if you find a really great broker, they could probably sell your house with a few phone calls. 
versus a lousy broker who's going to take pictures of your house, let them sit on the internet for months or years, and ultimately they'll drop the price several times in succession before selling your house for a bargain basement price. And you might not even be able to get them on the phone. Uh, it's, it can really be that bad sometimes. And business brokerage is exactly like that. Uh, there's tons of brokers out there who seem to just not care at all what their success fee is on the deal because if they're not going to do that much work anyway, it's just a numbers game. Let's sign up a lot of people and hopefully we'll close a few of them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, why not cut the rate to 4%? If I don't have to do much work and I can earn a lot of business by cutting my rate to 4%, why not do it? Uh, and that's the mentality a lot of people have. But we don't just throw it out there on the internet and hope for the best. Um, and you know, this is a problem of industries that are unregulated. Uh, you, know, you can have really lousy service and really great service, but not a lot of information to be able to determine who's the best one. Um, and so you know, our, our clients come in thinking that, that we're going to find a few leads for them. Uh, and so their inclination is to find a broker who can do that at the lowest cost, who is going to go get me those leads of buyers at the very lowest cost. The best thing I can do is to help my client understand you know, a few simple facts. One, uh, most brokers are unsuccessful at selling companies. Uh, by that, I mean they have a track record of selling less than 50% of the companies they take in. Uh, that happens because they view their job description a different way than I do. Uh, you know, number two, a broker should be the person who gets a company ready for sale, uh, makes it, you know, makes the best case they can about why the company should be sold, advocate for the client along the way, and really carry the burden of selling the company. Uh, and if you do all of that, you've really earned your commission at the end of all of that. Uh, those are, those are a lot more steps than just finding the right buyer for you. You know, uh, I I think about a couple of things that came to mind, you know, for the business owner out there that's going like, I really appreciate what you just said. And, you know, and before I forget, how do they find you on social media, by the way? Uh, you, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm, I'm Jude David with Raincatcher. Um, I, I don't do Facebook or any of those things. I, <laughs> I <laughs> never have, but, uh, but you can find me on LinkedIn or if you go to raincatcher.com, uh, we've got all of our profiles on there. Very... Yeah, so, so for that business owner, right? So as they're trying to interview and understand the differential, what are the key questions that business owner should ask anybody that they, they consider, you know, to, to contract to help them sell their company? What are the key questions? Yeah. It, a hard thing about it is, you know, again, you don't know what you don't know. So you might ask these questions trying to poke some holes in the answers. And if you don't have at least a cursory understanding, you may not understand whether they're giving you a good answer or a bad one. Um, but, you know, one, one of the things uh, that everybody should know from their broker is, you know, what's the valuation for my company? What can I reasonably expect to get if I take my company to market? And then how long is it going to take to do that? Tell me the steps what do we do before we go to market? Once we launch, where is it going to launch? And then how am I actually going to find that buyer and negotiate the thing to a closing? If anybody tells you that, uh, that you're going to be able to sell your, your complex organization that took you years to build, uh, to build and they're going to do it for you in three months, they're lying to you. <laughs> and so it may sound really great when they tell you that, but they're lying to you. Um, you should expect them to lay out a process like we do. Uh, 
uh, we've got several steps before we go to market. Um, first, we do due diligence so that uh, we can find all the information that a buyer wants to know about your company. Second, uh, we do an FAQ, which helps us to know everything about your company from a qualitative sense. Um, and third, we do a risk assessment so that we can find all the skeletons in the closet that a buyer is going to uncover. And you may not even know they're there. It might be something in your financials that you think is totally accurate, but a buyer is going to look at it and they're going to go running for the hills. So the worst thing I can do is let you go to market and then show that to a buyer and now you lose them. Instead, we find that on the front end, fix it, and make sure that we take your company to market in the best fashion that we possibly can. And all while we're doing that, we go ahead and put together a confidential information memorandum, which is a marketing document. Uh, that we present to, to buyers along the way. And all of that's on the front end before we even go to market with your company. So it, it takes us six, seven, maybe eight weeks to even get your company on the market. So not only are we not selling it in two months, we're actually doing all of this work on the front end to make sure that we have success whenever we, when we do launch the company. But the goal of that is to be able to set quick deadlines whenever we launch, uh, to be able to get information quickly. And hopefully by the time we take your company to market, it'll only be another four to six months to get from launching to closing. Uh, and that's about as quick as you're going to be able to do it. Uh, unless it's, you know, perhaps um, a company where you're selling simply contracts or selling a, an online service with not much diligence, those might go a little bit faster, but nearly every, you know, complex company with, with contracts and employees, uh, you can expect a minimum of five months from the time you sign your engagement letter to closing. Uh, and even that would be pretty fast. You know, I, I was thinking about as you were talking, two things. So let's say that I, I'm, I'm your, your client and, and you go and do your due diligence to go, Bob, you know, with your company, you know, half of your business is from one particular client. And given what you said you wanted and given what it looks like your company will get, you're not really there, there. What happens when you run across a company that has a glaring hole in their bucket? What, do you, what advice do you offer that business owner? Well, I, I wouldn't immediately say, no, we can't, we can't deal with that. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm going to explain to them how it makes their company less attractive mm -hmm. and how it's going to have an impact on price. And we have had that situation of even a single customer. Uh, you know, we've, we've had companies that we have listed where there is literally one customer. And <laughs> it can be very hard. Uh, but we had a software company like that this year that had a single customer. And we knew that would have an impact on value. And we took it to market. And there were tons of interested buyers. And we negotiated a fantastic transaction. And we had it closed in less than five months start to finish less than five months. Um, now that was a software platform company and those tend to be you know, pretty exciting and people want them. Uh, we've had other ones that are a little bit more labor intensive and they're harder to sell. And so if a client comes to me and we feel that there's still a strong possibility of getting to the closing table, and since we work on success fees alone, we better make sure there's a strong possibility of getting to the closing table then I'm going to go ahead and explain that to the client. Here's what I think we can do. If you still want to move forward now, we're here with you. Um, if we go ahead and wait, let me help you get into exit planning so that you can figure out how to build out your business a little bit rounder 
uh, in a way that's going to smooth out some of those rough edges. And, and believe me, a buyer is going to think that one customer is a very rough edge that needs to be smoothed out. And so it may take us six months or a year or even two years to help that client go to an exit planning group, really smooth out those rough edges, and hopefully they come back to us and, and we help them sell the company at that point. You know, I, I think about that business owner that says, you know, I'm going to sell it on my own. and they're going through this process unaided effectively. In, in your experience, what happens to the behavior and revenue of that company when the business owner is distracted by trying to sell it? Gosh, even if you have a trusted advisor, it's hard to keep your eye on the ball. And I've seen that plenty of, plenty of times. Uh, but the reason we get paid pretty handsomely on what we do is because it is very labor intensive to go sell these companies. Even if you really know what you're doing, it takes very dedicated concentration to be able to go sell one of these companies. And so, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Folks that try to do it themselves uh, end up taking their eye completely off the ball for running their company. Uh, and you, you typically see the company suffer not necessarily immediately, but over time. And because they don't realize how long and complex the process is, uh, they don't realize the impact it's going to have as you get closer to closing. And so very frequently, even if there is some success that they find the right buyer and uh, you know, they connect up and get into diligence, uh, the company starts to show signs of suffering four, five, six months into the process. Uh, you know, they haven't been reinvesting the way they should have. They certainly haven't been monitoring and keeping their processes in place the way they should. And just generally taking their eye off the ball, uh, it hurts them on the back end because they are going to get dinged on price. If they yeah, see the trajectory it, changes, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, the, the buyer's not as excited anymore. And so even if the buyer still wants to close, they don't want to do it at the same price. They had projected, you know, 15% growth. And instead of 15% growth, it was flat. Well, guess what? People don't like flat growth for, for a company. They definitely don't like declines. They want to buy a company that has the secret sauce and all you got to do is add a little bit more money and more investment to go make it an even bigger growth profile. Do, do you think the business owners um, recognize the difference in buyers between, was it strategic and financial buyers? Do you think they, they really are aware? You know, I think they are. Uh, you know, most folks have heard of private equity. Um, it's, you know, it's usually a four letter word for business owners. And so you have to explain what it really is. And even among brokers that I know, uh, a lot of them don't really have a full understanding of what private equity is because it's such a broad term. Um, and, you know, strategics, they may not phrase it in that way, but, but they typically know that bigger companies buy smaller companies. Um, but we, we have a lot of education to do for our clients on who those strategics are and who the private equity groups are and what a sale process looks like to them. And uh, that's, that's definitely something that's, um, you know, that's part of the process for us being able to educate the clients a little better. You know, one thing that we didn't really touch on very much is, you know, for all the work that you do with the business owners, you guys have a, a broad, uh, inventory or awareness of potential buyers from all of your years? We do. We've got a tremendous buyer directory and it's growing every day. Um, you know, every time I go bring in a new list of strategic buyers for a new deal, 
uh, that list grows. We also bring in new private equity buyers uh, in each deal because there are a lot of private equity groups out there that focus on particular industries and, and even subsets of industries. Um, and then just general uh, networking. We're constantly expanding that, that buyer database. Um, and so because we've been around for so long and we've been able to build out that database, the first stop for us whenever we're trying to find buyers is to that database to get the information to those people. And these are people that are actively looking for companies to buy. They are looking every single day trying to find companies to buy. And we can sort them by your industry, by your business size, by your geography. And so right off the bat, um, I, I launched a company yesterday uh, that we sent out a buyer blast to 640 buyers that are right there in our directory where that company meets the criteria for those buyers. And that's just a tremendous start uh, and you a know, tremendous I, resource. I think that's under-recognized and not valued properly by the potential business seller. I don't think they have any idea that they don't know about how important that might be. Oh, it, it's tremendously important. But again, I'd, I'd even take a step back and say, in the process of finding the right buyer, that's tremendously important. And we're going to have much more success because we have that tool at our disposal. But what the business owner doesn't understand is finding the right buyer may be 20% of the equation. They don't realize that the remaining 80% of the equation is every bit as important. You know, for, for all of the years that you've worked with the various business personalities in, in the transaction phase, how important is the emotional state of the seller? Uh, oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yep. Going to have to break out the, the, the drinking now. <laughs> yeah. Um, that may be the single most important factor. Um, yeah. And, and really personalities and emotions of both parties. Uh, although buyers tend to have less emotion because they're not selling their baby. Uh, and they've typically done this before. Uh, for sellers, you know, very frequently our client is somebody who has spent their life building a company. You know, that it's as important to them as their children is, or their children are. And it's, uh, you know, it's their life's work. They can't imagine what it would be like to go through the day-to-day -day without owning that company, without being the business owner. And they've never done it before. So because they've never had the experience of selling a company before, it's a massive unknown and it's just, they don't know what to expect. <clears throat> and like anything, if you have a massive unknown and a lack of information, it's kind of scary. Uh, it's hard to keep your wits about you in the process. Compound that with a very long and excruciating process where you're dealing with somebody who feels like they know how to do what you're doing a whole lot better than you do. Uh, they think they can take your company to a whole new height that you've never been able to achieve. Um, very frequently, they think you've made mistakes and missteps along the way, and they're very happy to tell you about it. <laughs> and then on top of that, you keep negotiating terms like representations and warranties and indemnities. And here's the money you might owe me back from the transaction if something goes wrong and <laughs> things that they never even expected to happen. And you start adding all of that stuff together at the end of a seven or eight month marathon process that was much harder than they thought it was going to be. Um, and even if you tell them how hard it's going to be, it doesn't sink in until they actually get that far uh, into it. And so deal fatigue is a real thing. 
it really sets in for people. It's very hard to understand uh, on the front end for us. Uh, you know, I, I think it's really important to always make sure our clients are very informed of where we're going so they understand how hard this process is going to be. But it's also very important that we handle as much as we can on our own and take that off of the owner's plate. Because if we do that and we can help them to not have all these burdens every single day in the process, it means whenever we get to crunch time and it gets really hard down the line, instead of having deal fatigue, you know, it, it's like whenever you're in the fourth quarter of an SEC football game and you have a running back with fresh legs, you're, you're bringing in the, <laughs> you know, the workhorse <laughs> who's going to go bring it home for you. And, uh, and that's what we try to do for our clients. We try to keep their legs fresh so that they're ready to run and, uh, and ready to make it work. You know, I, I think about the analogy, there's not too many self-surgery centers. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, and, and I think there was a statistic I was aware of. It said in a certain price range or, or revenue range, 80% of the businesses will not transact. And you guys have a much different experience with the people you represent. Yeah, that, it's just not my experience at all. Um, you know, we, we don't typically see companies that come through our process and don't close. Uh, in fact, um, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to somebody about that, and that's always one of the questions that sellers are going to have for us. You know, what's your percentage of your closing or what's your closing rate or whatever it is? And I said, gosh, that's just so hard to, to even answer um, because you know, I hope it's 100%. <laughs> that's that's mm -hmm. that's the goal, um, but just because something's been in my pipeline for five months and hasn't closed yet doesn't mean it's not going to close in the next three. Mm -hmm. um, and so, a couple of weeks ago, when somebody asked me that, I said, "Well, there's really only one deal in my pipeline that I think won't close, and uh, and that's a very very small percentage that I don't think will close. All the rest are right on track to get to a closing." Wouldn't you know, in the last two weeks, we went under letter of intent with that deal, and now we're <laughs> marching towards a closing. So I'm back to hoping it's 100%. Well, you know, I, 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 you know, I think about the questions that people try to ask, you know, because I think if you're uneducated, not that you're stupid, but I mean, you know how to run your business, you don't know how to sell your business. And so you go and you try to take in, ask intelligent questions with no perspective on the answer. You know, that'd be you know, like me asking a surgeon, what particular scalpel size do you use to, you know, and if they said four or seven, I wouldn't know the difference, you know, kind of thing. But yeah, um, and I wouldn't even necessarily know their scalpel sizes, but gosh, no. I can tell you all about the deal structures that you might want to <laughs> want to take a look at. So I guess it's hiring the right person for the right job. Yeah, I, I, I can't you know, even the imagine the best for the job, the best you can find for the job. I think is what you should be doing. And if you can't tell if it's the best one, you should do more homework. Exactly. P people get afraid of hiring folks on, on a commission or on a percentage basis. And you know, the, the best way I can explain that to you is if I can go get you 40% more deal value, wasn't it worth it to you to pay 10% to me to do it? <laughs> I mean, you know, to go like, might I have two of those, please? Yeah, exactly. Let's, let's have as many brokers as we can get in the mix to, to, uh, <laughs> to get that deal value up. That's you know, and, being facetious, of course, but yeah, but I, you know, sometimes you kind of, it's like a head slapper and, you know, which kind of goes back to the point of the business owner. I mean, I, I'm a business owner and I mean, I admire them always have. And, and I think, you know, 
what was it? There was a statistic after the 2008 market crash that about two-thirds of all jobs created in the U.S. were created by the small business owner. And you know, the value of those, of those folks to, to the communities is almost immeasurable, I think. And so I'm a fan. Part of the reason I have the podcast is I talk to business owners all the time. You know, and you have this, this wealth of experience. If you could take in, you know, let's say that you could roll the clock back and still retain all of your experience and wisdom, what are the one, two, or three pieces of advice that you would offer to these business owners based on all of this wealth of experience that you have? Oh gosh, but, you know, where, where to even start? That's a, uh, that's a difficult question. Um, yeah, you know, so there's, there's plenty I can talk about in terms of, um, you know, making sure that, that you negotiate the deal well uh, and never lose integrity in the process. Uh, I think both of those are, are incredibly important and people lose sight of them. Um, I guess it's because, you know, they, they can be really good people, but this is the biggest decision of their life. This is their nest egg that they're hoping to sock away and it can be very difficult. Um, for them to keep their wits about themselves while trying to get through the process. I think some of them even self-sabotage because they get so scared and they just want to go back to running their company. Um, and so I think hire the right people, have a great plan, uh, and keep your wits about you uh, to make sure that, that you're using the integrity you always use in your business whenever you're trying to, to go through the sale process. Um, and, you know, it... <laughs> make sure you understand what your own goals are whenever you're doing this. Um, you know, it's, it's very easy for people to lose sight of what it is they're trying to achieve. Uh, you know, for instance, if you started this process and realized I want $5 million to sock away for retirement, and that's going to be my goal in the process. If you sat down and you had that thought go through your head and you decided that was your plan, and you can keep your eye on that goal, uh, then you can you know, let some of that minutia go as it pops up during the, during the sale process. If you can't keep your eye on that prize and know what your goal is, uh, then everything affects you so much more. Every time somebody has a discussion about uh, you know, what's needed in terms of contracts and, and purchase agreements and whatever else, it, it all starts to be personal and it starts to feel like you're getting attacked that's really just not the case. It's how do I get to my goal and how do I get to the other side? Uh, generally speaking, if you haven't made the decision to sell your company yet, uh, the big piece of advice would be sell in the good times. Um, and this comes from a lot of experience because I see, I see <laughs> sellers all the time. <laughs> they come in and they, they just, you know, they think to themselves, I'm doing better now than I've ever done with my business. Why would I sell? <laughs> and, and they, they Sounds wait. Like until, Sounds like 07. Sounds like 07. They wait until that big four or five year growth streak that their company is having is over. And, you know, then they start to say things like, gosh, you know, growing this company has gotten so much harder. Or it is just miserable to run this business. Or, you know, this business has gotten to be way too much of a hassle. Uh, I want 
to dump it or I, I need to move on to do something else or I'm bored or you know, whatever it is. You know, we've stopped performing as a company and for whatever reason, uh, it's gotten so much harder to have a good company and I want somebody else to take it now. And, and guess what? Um, you know, buyers don't tend to like companies that are really hard to run that don't have good growth potential. <laughs> buyers, buyers want to find a company that's growing. There's a real clear path to success. Uh, and they want to be able to do that with relative ease, just like you. And so if you wait until that growth has stopped, uh, it's going to be a whole lot harder to sell your company. Well, you know, I think about the business owner that doesn't know the difference between a business and a job. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You know, um, yeah, th this isn't your daily grind. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, I, I've, I've been harassing you for what seems like a better part of an hour. And, you know, I, I think, you know, the, the short answer for the folks listening is if you haven't caught on to it, you know, family orientation, integrity, setting goals and getting professionals. If those are important to you, that's pretty much been the focus of what we've talked about since we started, you know, and, and reaching out, um, there is no cost for reaching out. And so the best thing you can do is if you're thinking about um, marketing your company at some point, you know, it's better to reach out sooner than later and, you know, reach out to Jude and ask. I mean, there's no harm in asking. And Jude, you know, to close, you know, we've talked about family beforehand and you've mentioned it and faith and integrity. What's the best piece of advice that you carry forward with you that you think you ever got? Oh boy, that's a good one as well. Um, I think I'd, I'd go for two of them. Uh, you know, one is from a lawyer that I worked with uh, very, very early in my career. He said to me, never bluff. And, uh, you know, if you've ever played poker, you know how important it is to be able to have a good poker face and bluff. He said, when you're negotiating, never bluff. Uh, it's great if you want to give ultimatums, but you better say what you mean and mean what you say. Because as soon as you lose credibility in the deal process, it gets a whole lot harder to move forward. Uh, and you know, what, I do that all the time. Um, you know, I, I don't know another business broker anywhere who will advise their clients to walk away from a deal if it's not right. Uh, but I can't tell you how many times I've done that. It's important to me if I feel like things are going sideways to be able to tell a client, you need to walk away today. And that doesn't necessarily mean we're not going to close with this buyer, but it might mean that they need to know that you're serious, that under their current circumstances, with the attitude that they have on this deal, you're not going to close with them. And either they come back and they have a better attitude or they don't. So never, ever bluff. Um, the other one I got was from a president for a private equity fund that I represented uh, for a lot of years. So in my law days, I, I represented buyers as well as sellers. Uh, so this was a buyer, a private equity fund president. And it wasn't necessarily advice. It was just an observation uh, of what he did. Um, he never sweated the small stuff. So if a big issue arose, he would put the hammer down, but he wouldn't sweat the small things. And so if there was a bunch of minutia in a deal and people would argue about every little deal point like post-closing liabilities and indemnities and maybe some little side hustle that a seller wanted to do after closing that you know, may or may not be a, a violation of the non-compete or 
whatever, any deal points that might arise, he'd frequently just say they can have it. Whatever they want, that's fine. Uh, and, and he'd say to me too on all the indemnities, cause I'm the lawyer sitting there telling him, gosh, you can't give them that. And he'd say, well, it's not like I'm going to sue them anyway. You know, if everything goes to heck after the transaction, I'm not going to sue them anyway. So why do I care what the document says? But I could remember several occasions very clearly when a seller tried to take advantage of that generosity and change a material deal term, uh, or even the price. Uh, while we approach the finish line. And, uh, you know, this particular client was larger than life. He's one of those guys that had a real presence to him. And uh, and one time, whenever that happened, you know, we're sitting at a table a couple of days before closing, and, you know, the, the sellers have their wish list of all the things that they want to change before closing. And he's saying, yes, yes, fine. And they say the next thing, he says, yes, 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 fine. And they get to the very last item on the wish list, and they had saved a price increase on the transaction, the last item on the list. You know, as though it's an insignificant item on the tail end of the wish list that they had that they wanted to Maybe also get more money. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I, I just remember him so clearly, this larger-than-life guy standing up and saying, Now, see here! <laughs> I give a lot, make sure the people are pleased, but the people I do deal with, deals with have integrity, and they don't change the terms at the 11th hour. You can rethink about that request or you can walk out the door right now. And, you know, that group, that private equity group closed every deal I ever worked for them on. And, um, you know, I think he realized that everybody needs a win uh, in negotiations. You can't always feel like you get to win every little battle. And so why not let them have all the small stuff? Because whenever it comes to the really important things, we need to make sure that that we're bringing those changes home, but, uh, but let people have some wins. Don't sweat the small stuff. You know, I, I tell you this, I think we could go on for a long time here, but you know, again, you know, for you folks out there listening, uh, this has been a, a very useful and informative episode. And if you don't take anything else away from this, make sure if you have a question and you're a business owner and you're thinking about doing this or Worse yet, you're a business owner that's had a, a rapid change in your circumstance, health issue, and you have to get busy and do something. Make sure you reach out to Jude. I think that you would find that you would be well served. And, and Jude, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time uh, to visit with us this afternoon. Thanks, Bob. It's been a pleasure being here with you. Absolutely. Well, we'll wind it up here then.